Hey, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Taiko Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. I'm happy to have you regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast stands in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show, as well as links to institutions fighting for reproductive justice, can all be found in the show notes. Sorry, I'm laughing because of the way I said institutions, which apparently is a word I can't say without sounding drunk. Dionia by Vernon Lee October 27th Fine sentiments the above are for a professor, a learned man. I thought the young artists of Rome childish because they played practical jokes and yelled at night in the streets returning from the Café Greco or the cellar in the Via Polumbella, but am I not as childish to the fool? I, melancholy wretch whom they call Hamlet and the Knight of the Doleful Countenance? November 5th. I can't free myself from the thought of this Medea de Carpi. In my walks, my mornings in the archives, my solitary evenings, I catch myself thinking over the woman. Am I turning novelist instead of historian? And still it seems to me that I understand her so well, so much better than my facts warrant. First, we must put aside all pedantic modern ideas of right and wrong. Right and wrong in a century of violence and treachery does not exist, least of all for creatures like Medea. Go preach right and wrong to a tigress, my dear sir. Yet is there in the world anything nobler than the huge creature, steel when she springs, velvet when she treads, as she stretches her supple body or smooths her beautiful skin or fastens her strong claws into her victim? Yes, I can understand, Medea. Fancy a woman of superlative beauty, of the highest courage and calmness, a woman of many resources, of genius, brought up by a petty princelet of a father upon Tacitus and Celeste and the tales of the great Malatestus of Caesar Borgia and such like, a woman whose one passion is conquest and empire, <laughs> fancy her, on the eve of being wedded to a man of the power of the Duke of Stimiliano, claimed carried off by a small fry of a pico, locked up in his hereditary brigand's castle, and having to receive the young fool's red-hot love as an honor and a necessity. The mere thought of any violence to such a nature is an abominable outrage, and if Pico chooses to embrace such a woman at the risk of meeting a sharp piece of steel in her arms, why, it is a fair bargain. Young hound, or if you prefer young hero, to think to treat a woman like this as if she were any village wench. Medea marries her Orsini. A marriage, let it be noted, between an old soldier of 50 and a girl of 16. Reflect what that means. It means that this imperious woman is soon treated like a chattel, made roughly to understand that her business is to give the duke an heir, not advice, that she must never ask wherefore this or that, that she must courtesy before the duke's counselors, his captains, his mistresses that at the least suspicion of rebelliousness, she is subject to his foul words and blows, at the least suspicion of infidelity, to be strangled or starved to death or thrown down an oubliette. Suppose that she knew that her husband has taken it into his head, that she has looked too hard at this man or that, that one of his lieutenants or one of his women have whispered that, after all, the boy Bartolomeo might as soon be a Pico as an Orsini. Suppose she knew that she must strike or be struck. Why, she strikes. Or gets someone to strike for her. At what price? A promise of love? Of love to a groom? The son of a serf? 
Why, the dog must be mad or drunk to believe such a thing possible. His very belief in anything so monstrous makes him worthy of death. And then he dares to blab. This is much worse than Pico. Medea is bound to defend her honor a second time. And if she could stab Pico, she could certainly stab this fellow. Or have him stabbed. Hounded by her husband's kinsman, she takes refuge at Urbania. The duke, like every other man, falls wildly in love with Medea and neglects his wife. Let us even go so far as to say, breaks his wife's heart. Is this Medea's fault? Is it her fault that every stone that comes beneath her chariot wheels is crushed? Certainly not. Do you suppose that a woman like Medea feels the smallest ill will against a poor, craven Duchess Madalena? Why, she ignores her very existence. To suppose Medea a cruel woman is as grotesque as to call her an immoral woman. Her fate is, sooner or later, to triumph over her enemies, at all events to make their victory almost a defeat. Her magic faculty is to enslave all the men who come across her path. All those who see her, love her, become her slaves, and it is the destiny of all of her slaves to perish. Her lovers, with the exception of Duke Guadalfonso, all come to an untimely end, and in this, there is nothing unjust. The possession of a woman like Medea is a happiness too great for a mortal man. It would turn his head, make him forget even what he owed her. No man must survive long who conceives himself to have a right over her. It is a kind of sacrilege, and only death, the willingness to pay for such happiness by death, can at all make a man worthy of being her lover. He must be willing to love and suffer and die. This is the meaning of her device, amor dure, dure amor. The love of Medea de Carpi cannot fade, but the lover can die. It is a constant and a cruel love. November 11th. I was right. I was right, quite right, in my idea. I have found... <laughs> oh, joy. I treated the vice prefect's son to a dinner of five courses of the Trattoria La Stella d'Italia out of sheer jubilation. I have found in the archives, unknown, of course, to the director, a heap of letters. Letters of Duke Robert about Medea de Carpi. Letters of Medea herself. Yes, Medea's own handwriting. A round, scholarly character full of abbreviations with a Greek look about it, as befits a learned prince who could read Plato as well as Petrarch. The letters are of little importance, mere drafts of business letters for her secretary to copy during the time that she governed the poor weak Guadalfonso. But they are her letters, and I can imagine almost that there hangs about these moldering pieces of paper a scent as of the woman's hair. The few letters of Duke Robert show him in a new light, a cunning, cold, but craven priest. He trembles at the bare thought of Medea, la pessima Medea, Worse than her namesake of Colchis, as he calls her. His long clemency is a result of mere fear of laying violent hands upon her. He fears her as something almost supernatural. He would have enjoyed having had her burnt as a witch. After letter on letter telling his crony, Cardinal Sansevarino, at Rome his various precautions during her lifetime, how he wears a jacket of mail under his coat, how he drinks only milk from a cow which he has milked in his presence— how he tries his dog with morsels of his food lest it be poisoned, how he suspects the wax candles because of their peculiar smell, how he fears riding out lest someone should frighten his horse and cause him to break his neck. After all this, and when Medea has been in her grave two years, 
he tells his correspondent of his fear of meeting the soul of Medea after his own death and chuckles over the ingenious device concocted by his astrologer and a certain frog Guadenzio, a capuchin, by which he shall secure the absolute peace of his soul until that of the wicked Medea be finally chained up in hell among the lakes of boiling pitch and the ice of Cana described by the immortal bard. Old pedant. Here, then, is the explanation of that silver image, quad vulgo dicitor idolino, which he caused to be soldiered into his effigy by Tassi. As long as the image of his soul was attached to the image of his body, he should sleep, awaiting the day of judgment, fully convinced that Medea's soul will then be properly tarred and feathered, while his, honest man, will fly straight to paradise. And to think that two weeks ago, I believed this man to be a hero. <laughs> my good Duke Robert, you shall be shown up in my history, and no amount of silver Idolinos shall save you from being heartily laughed at. November 15th. Strange. That idiot of a prefect's son, who has heard me talk a hundred times of Medea de Carpi, suddenly recollects that when he was a child at Urbania, his nurse used to threaten him with a visit from Madonna Medea, who rode in the sky on a black he-goat. My Duchess of Medea turned into a bogey for naughty little boys. November 20th. I have been going about with a Bavarian professor of medieval history, showing him all over the country. Among other places, we went to Rocco Santelmo to see the former villa of the Dukes of Urbania, the villa where Medea was confined between the accession of Duke Robert and the conspiracy of Marc Antonio Frangipani, which caused her removal to the nunnery immediately outside the town. A long ride up the desolate Apennine valleys, bleak beyond words just now with their fringe of oak scrub turned russet, thin patches of grass seared by the frost, the last few yellow leaves of the poplars by the torrents shaking and fluttering about in the chill Tramontana. The mountaintops are wrapped in thick gray cloud. Tomorrow, if the wind continues, we shall see them round masses of snow against the cold blue sky. Sant'Elmo is a wretched hamlet high on the Apennine Ridge where the Italian vegetation is already replaced by that of the north. You ride for miles through leafless chestnut woods, the scent of the soaking brown leaves filling the air, the roar of the torrent, turbid with autumn rains rising from the precipice below. Then suddenly, the leafless chestnut woods are replaced as at Vallombroso by a belt of black, dense fir plantations. Emerging from these, you come to an open space. Frozen blasted meadows, the rocks of snow-clad peak, the newly fallen snow close above you, and in the midst, on a knoll with a gnarled larch on either side, the ducal villa of Santelmo, a big black stone box with a stone escutcheon, grated windows, and a double flight of steps in front. It is now let out to the proprietor of the neighboring woods, who uses it for the storage of chestnuts, faggots, and charcoal from the neighboring ovens. We tied our horses to the iron rings and entered. An old woman with disheveled hair was alone in the house. The villa is a mere hunting lodge built by Otto Buono IV, the father of Dukes Guadalfonso and Robert about 1530. Some of the rooms have at one time been frescoed and paneled with oak carvings, but all this has disappeared. Only, in one of the big rooms, there remains a large marble fireplace, similar to those in the palace at Urbania. Beautifully carved with cupids on a blue ground, a charming naked boy sustains a jar on either side, 
one containing clove pinks, the other roses. The room was filled with stacks of faggots. We returned home late, my companion, in excessively bad humor at the fruitlessness of the expedition. We were caught in the skirt of a snowstorm as we got into the chestnut woods. The sight of the snow falling gently, of the earth and bushes whitened all round, made me feel back at Posen, once more a child. I sang and shouted to my companion's horror. This will be a bad point against me if reported at Berlin. A historian of twenty-four who shouts and sings, and that when another historian is cursing at the snow and the bad roads. All night I lay awake watching the embers of my wood fire and thinking of Medea de Carpi mewed up in winter in that solitude of Santelmo, the firs groaning, the torrent roaring, the snow falling all around, miles and miles away from human creatures. I fancied I saw it all and that I somehow was Marcantonio Frangipani come to liberate her. Or was it Prinzivali daily Ordolafi? I suppose it was because of the long ride, the unaccustomed pricking feeling of the snow in the air, or perhaps the punch which my professor insisted on drinking after dinner. November 23rd. Thank goodness that Bavarian professor has finally departed. Those days he spent here drove me nearly crazy. Talking over my work, I told him one day my views on Medea de Carpi, whereupon he condescended to answer that those were the usual tales due to the mythopoic, old idiot, tendency of the Renaissance. That research would disprove the greater part of them as it had disproved the stories current about the Borgias, etc. That, moreover, such a woman as I made out was psychologically and physiologically impossible. Would that one could say as much of such professors as he and his fellows. November 24th. I cannot get over my pleasure in being rid of that imbecile. I felt as if I could have throttled him every time he spoke of the lady of my thoughts, for such she has become. Mattia, as the animal called her. November 30th. I feel quite shaken at what has just happened. I am beginning to fear that that old pedant was right in saying that that it was bad for me to live all alone in a strange country, that it would make me morbid. It is ridiculous that I should be put into such a state of excitement merely by the chance discovery of a portrait of a woman dead these three hundred years. With the case of my uncle Ladislaw and other suspicions of insanity in my family, I ought really to guard against such foolish excitement. Yet the incident was really dramatic, uncanny. I could have sworn that I knew every picture in the palace here, and particularly every picture of her. Anyhow, this morning, as I was leaving the archives, I passed through one of the many small rooms, irregular-shaped closets which fill up the ins and outs of this curious palace, turreted like a French chateau. I must have passed through that closet before, for the view was so familiar out its window, just the particular bit of round tower in front, the cypress on the other side of the ravine, the belfry beyond, and the piece of the line of Mont Sant Agata and the Leonessa covered with snow against the sky. I suppose there must be twin rooms, and that I had got into the wrong one, or rather perhaps some shutter had been opened or curtain withdrawn. As I was passing, my eye was caught by a very beautiful old mirror frame let into the brown and yellow inlaid wall. I approached, and looking at the frame, looked also mechanically into the glass. I gave a great start and almost shrieked, I do believe. It's lucky the Munich professor is safe out of Urbania. 
Behind my own image stood another, a figure close to my shoulder, a face close to mine, and that figure, that face, hers. Medea de Carpes. I turned sharp round, as white, I think, as the ghost I expected to see. On the wall, opposite the mirror, just a pace or two behind where I had been standing, hung a portrait. (laughs) And such a portrait. Bronzino never painted a grander one. Against a background of harsh dark blue, there stands out the figure of the Duchess. For it is Medea, the real Medea, and a thousand times more real, individual and powerful than in the other portraits, seated stiffly in a high-backed chair, sustained, as it were, almost rigid by the stiff brocade of skirts and stomacher, stiffer for plaques of embroidered silver flowers and rows of seed pearl. The dress is, with its mixture of silver and pearl, of a strange dull red, a wicked poppy juice color, against which the flesh of the long, narrow hands with fringe-like fingers, of the long, slender neck and the face with bared forehead, looks white and hard, like alabaster. The face is the same as in the other portraits. The same rounded forehead with the short, fleece-like, yellowish-red curls, the same beautifully curved eyebrows just barely marked, the same eyelids a little tight across the eyes, the same lips a little tight across the mouth, but with a purity of line, a dazzling splendor of skin and intensity of look immeasurably superior to all the other portraits. She looks out of the frame with a cold level glance, yet the lips smile. One hand holds a dull red rose. The other, long, narrow, tapering, plays with a thick rope of silk and gold and jewels hanging from the waist. Round the throat, white as marble, partially confined in the tight dull red bodice, hangs a gold collar with a device on alternate enameled medallions. Amor dure, dure amor. On reflection, I see that I simply could never have been in that room or closet before. I must have mistaken the door. But, although the explanation is so simple, I still, after several hours, feel terribly shaken in all my being. If I grow so excitable, I shall have to go to Rome at Christmas for a holiday. I feel as if some danger pursued me here. Can it be fever? And yet, and yet, I don't see how I shall ever tear myself away. December 10th. I have made an effort and accepted the vice prefect's son's invitation to see the oil making at a villa of theirs near the coast. The villa, or farm, is an old fortified towered place, standing on a hillside among olive trees and little osier bushes which look like a bright orange flame. The olives are squeezed in a tremendous black cellar, like a prison, you see, by the faint white daylight, and the smoky yellow flame of resin burning in pans, great white bullocks moving round a huge millstone, vague figures working at pulleys and handles. It looks, to my fancy, like some scene of the Inquisition. The Cavaliere regaled me with some of his best wine and rusks. I took some long walks by the seaside. I had left Urbania wrapped in snow clouds. Down on the coast, there was a bright sun. The sunshine, the sea, the bustle of the little port on the Adriatic seemed to do me good. I came back to Urbania another man. Sor Asdrubale, my landlord, poking about in slippers among the gilded chests, the empire sofas, the old cups and saucers, and pictures which no one will buy, congratulated me upon the improvement in my looks. 
You work too much, he says. Youth requires amusement. Theaters, promenades, amori. It is time enough to be serious when one is bald. And he took off his greasy red cap. Yes, I am better. And as a result, I take to my work with delight again. I will cut them out still, those wiseacres at Berlin. December 14th. I don't think I have ever felt so happy about my work. I see it all so well. That crafty, cowardly Duke Robert, that melancholy Duchess Madalena, that weak, showy, would-be chivalrous Duke Guadalfonso, and above all, the splendid figure of Medea. I feel as if I were the greatest historian of the age, and at the same time as if I were a boy of twelve. It snowed yesterday for the first time in the city for two good hours. When it had done, I actually went into the square and taught the ragamuffins to make a snowman. No, a snowwoman, and I had the fancy to call her Medea. La Pissima Medea, cried one of the boys. The one who used to ride through the air on a goat? No, no, I said. She was a beautiful lady, the Duchess of Urbania, the most beautiful woman that ever lived. I made her a crown of tinsel and taught the boys to cry, Eviva Medea! But one of them said, She is a witch! She must be burnt! At which they all rushed to fetch burning faggots and tow. In a minute, the yelling demons had melted her down. December 15th. What a goose I am, and to think I am 24 and known in literature. In my long walks, I have composed to a tune, I don't know what it is, which all the people are singing and whistling in the street at present. A poem in frightful Italian beginning, Medea, Mia Dia, calling on her in the name of her various lovers. I go about humming between my teeth. Why am I not Mark Antonio, or Prinzivali, or he of Narni, or the good Duke Alfonso, that I might be beloved by thee, Medea, Mia, Dia, etc., etc.? Awful rubbish. My landlord, I think, suspects that Medea must be some lady I met while I was staying by the seaside. I am sure Sora Serafina, Sora Lodovica, and Sora Adelgisa, the three parquet, or norns as I call them, have some such notion. This afternoon, at dusk, while tidying my room, Sora Lodovica said to me, How beautifully the signorino has taken to singing. I was scarcely aware that I had been vociferating, Vieni, Medea, Mia, Dia, while the old lady bobbed about making up my fire. I stopped. A nice reputation I shall get, I thought. And all this will somehow get to Rome, and thence to Berlin. Sora Lodovica was leaning out the window, pulling in the iron hook of the shrine lamp, which marks Sora Asdrubale's house. As she was trimming the lamp previous to swinging it out again, she said in her odd, prudish little way, "'You are wrong to stop singing, my son.' She varies between calling me Signor Professore and such terms of affection as Nino, Viscare Mia, etc. "'You are wrong to stop singing, for there is a young lady there in the street who has actually stopped to listen to you.' I ran to the window. A woman, wrapped in a black shawl, was standing in an archway, looking up to the window. Hey, hey, the Signor Professore has admirers, said Sora Lodovica. Medea, mia dia, I burst out as loud as I could, with a boy's pleasure in disconcerting the inquisitive passerby. She turned suddenly round to go away, waving her hand at me. At that moment, Sora Lodovica swung the shrine lamp back into place. A stream of light fell across the street and I felt myself grow quite cold. The face of the woman outside 
was that of Medea de Carpi. <laughs> what a fool I am, to be sure. And that is the end of part two of the story. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, please feel free to join me on Patreon. Or pick up a copy of the Colin Malatrap Museum of Curious Oddities and Strange Antiquities, a collection of 14 weird fiction stories that tell an overarching story of love, loss, and revenge. Or you can pick up any of the other audiobooks I've got floating around. Just do a search for Mike Queller, C-U-E-L-L-A-R, in the Apple Bookstore or on Audible. Please go and get vaccinated for anything you are available to get. If you see a racist out and about, punch them square in the face. And always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week. Thanks so much to all my patrons, Mirka Stobienia, and God, I hope I pronounced that somewhere close to being right. New patron, thank you so much for your support. Dave Baxter, Robert Biddle, A. Smith, Billy, J.R., Michaela, Lauren Maines, John McDonough, David Ricker, Ambervale, Steve Meyer, Andrew Buchanan, Samantha Hickey, Maylin, Marco Van Putin, Ineptus Astartes, Matthias Hansen, and Eric Braun. Thank you and all my patrons so much for your support. It is what allows me to keep doing my stupid little show, which I very much enjoy doing. Thank you. <laughs>